Well, welcome to The Lawyer You Know. This is George Tragos. I am sitting in for the ever-popular Peter Tragos, who is preparing for a trial right now. And we are going to be covering the Derek Chauvin trial. So this will be volume one. We'll be doing another volume once the prosecution ends and we go into the defense phase. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome to The Lawyer You Know, and today we're going to bring you up to date on the Derek Chauvin trial, and this is George Tragos filling in for Peter Tragos. Here we are, 31 witnesses into the trial, and I think a couple of the things we probably should talk about first is this trial really began and started being planned well before uh, two weeks ago when it really started. It's when the uh, governor, Governor Waltz of uh, Minnesota, decided to appoint the attorney general to prosecute the case instead of the local county prosecutor. He actually took the case away from that prosecutor. And then the prosecutor assigned three of his assistant attorney generals to try the case. One is the head of his criminal division that's been the head of his criminal division for 14 years and has been a prosecutor for 21 years. But one of the unusual aspects for what goes on up in Minnesota is that although you have prosecutors full-time paid, they're allowed to use private lawyers as well to prosecute cases. And in this case, there are 13 prosecutors involved, three that are full-time prosecutorial employees, 10 private lawyers have volunteered their time. We don't have that in Florida, but for some reason, these lawyers decided they wanted to get in on this. So we have 13 people prosecuting this case. And on the defense side, we have the union, which in this case was the, it's the Minneapolis Police and Peace Officers Association, and that's a union of the police officers. They're paying for Derek Chauvin's defense. And their lawyer there is Eric Nelson. He's on a rotating group of 10 lawyers that defend police officers when they have problems. Initially, a guy named Tom Kelling was supposed to be the guy trying it, but he's retiring. So when they found out he's retiring, they appointed Mr. Nelson. And don't think Mr. Nelson is having a serious problem with resources because the union has assigned a million dollars to defend this case. And not only are they defending this case, but the other officers that are arrested as well. So it's going to cost a lot of money in dues by these police officers. The ACLU has said that they really object to this. And why would the ACLU object to this? Because they say, the union is saying, we need reform in the law enforcement agency. But how can they say we need reform when they're willing to back the officer that started all this, which is Derek Chauvin? So they see a conflict, so they object to the union representing him. But he paid dues for a lot of years to that union, and now he's getting to use the benefit of those dues. He's charged with second and third degree murder, He could uh, go to prison from 10 to 15 years to up to 40 years. And now we've come to the point where we actually have started the trial. We're in the first week. Uh, Jury selection. Jury selection was done by a private lawyer, Mr. Schiller, S-C-H-L-E-I-C-H-E-R. Mr. Schiller picked the jury, and it's a jury of diverse individuals. There's 12 individuals on the jury, many different backgrounds and types. As you can imagine, It was very difficult to find a jury. Who hasn't seen the video? 
who hasn't had some opinion? So they've got to do the best they can do. When, you, when you've got a high-profile case, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you don't get the exact jury you want. A defense lawyer wants a jury that is defense-oriented, it's going to be sympathetic to his client. Prosecutors want a jury that's going to be sympathetic to the victim. And in this case, they had to find kind of a compromise because, again, there was no totally clean slate juror, especially up in that city, that's going to be able to come in and sit here and not know anything about this case. But they found a jury. And then we have opening statements. Jerry Blackwell, who is an African-American civil rights lawyer, again, another private lawyer, who actually did the opening statements in this case. He was picked because he is supposed to be the best at taking the legalese of a lawsuit or a trial and, and making it simple so people can understand. And that's something that lawyers really screw up a lot, is they talk to jurors like they're lawyers and not like they're people. And apparently Jerry Blackwell is well known for being able to do that. Another lawyer on this uh, team of 13 prosecutors is Neil Cattell. Neil Cattell is the former Solicitor General of the United States. Imagine that. He is the man who represented the United States government before the U.S. Supreme Court. And what did he do? He is the one that did the legal arguments to get the third-degree murder reinstated before this local trial judge. Because initially, he'd thrown the third-degree murder out. But he got it reinstated. So they've got a lot of heavyweights backing them up. So in the first week... We have an opening, and the opening by uh, Blackwell used this term, betrayed his badge, and then until life was squeezed out of him. That's really an important, betrayed his badge, because what he did is he's not attacking the total police force. He made sure to differentiate what Derek Chauvin did versus all the police in that department. People generally like law enforcement, people that are on juries. So this way, he didn't have to condemn the entire police department. He's not prosecuting the entire police department for any kind of a systemic racism. He's settling, settling it on one guy. And he's saying betrayed his badge, which means he betrayed the oath of being a police officer. So he singled him out until life was squeezed out of him. Another very important phase. They've made a choice when they're trying this case, how did Mr. Floyd die? Did he die from a heart attack? Did he die from uh, blood flow being restricted to his heart or his brain? Or did he die from asphyxiation? They have decided asphyxiation is the way they're going to go. So they made a decision at the beginning of this trial and its opening of telling the jury, this is the way we're going. Later on, we're going to talk about the medical testimony and how that may cause a problem for the prosecution because they've chosen this one particular aspect of a cause of death. He also played the video in the uh, opening statement. If I was the defense, I might play the video a lot because what we've learned from trying cases is the more you show the really bad stuff, the less shocking it becomes. And it may be that you can anesthetize the jury by showing them this enough and enough and enough so it's not shocking them anymore. The prosecution showed it in their opening. The defense did not. And the oxygen uh, deficiency argument is going to be something that is going to be, was talked about by the defense in their opening. 
they're going to say that was not the cause of death. The cause of death was heart failure. The cause of death was the result of the drug use and the drugs that were in his system at the time. So they have also laid out their defense in the opening. And we have to see whether or not they're going to be able to carry out that defense. Right now, we're in the middle of the prosecution's case. So we're only seeing one side. Uh, we've got 16 experts, medical experts listed by the defense. We're not going to hear them probably for another week or so. And then we'll see how it comes off the expert testimony. The first witness that was called in this group was the clerk from Cups Foods. His name was Christopher Martin. Christopher Martin testified that he regrets calling the police that night and telling his manager about the counterfeit $20 bill. He believes that he started all of the chain of events that caused George Floyd's death. And he sure regrets that. Then we heard from the high school student who shot the video. And she says she regrets that she couldn't do something physically to help him to save his life instead of just shooting the video. Of course, one has to wonder, where would we be today if there wasn't a video? Would this case have gotten the notoriety again? Would it have been prosecuted? Would we have be having a murder trial if there wasn't an actual video of what happened uh, to show that nine, nine minutes and 28 seconds? Then we had a firefighter who was present, Geneva Hansen. The police prevented her from giving medical aid to George Floyd. Charles McMillan, who was a witness, was so upset and cried so hysterically on the stand that the judge had to call a recess. Donald Williams, the mixed martial arts fighter, an expert in martial arts, testified that this was a blood choke. He was allowed to testify to that, which normally a person wouldn't be. But the judge found that because of his experience and his training, that he was able to give an opinion about that particular choke uh, and the knee being on the neck and understanding that it has a name within his martial arts fight of the blood choke. The 911 dispatcher, really interesting. She sits and watches video and she had a street cam of what was going on. And she saw the video of Mr. Floyd being taken out of the car, out of the squad car, placed on the ground. She thought that was really unusual because Derek Chauvin didn't call for any backup or additional assistance. If he was having this kind of problem, she expected that he'd ask for assistance but he didn't. So she then tells the sergeant, the supervisor, the sergeant then goes and makes contact and goes to the scene to find out what's going on. Within, so that is a kind of a synopsis of, the, of what they had and the kind of people they had, because this was the first part of the trial. Prosecutors who know what they're doing divide a trial into sections, into groups. In this case, we've seen where they've done that. First, there, the actual moments on the scene. They had the emotional testimony. They got the jury into it emotionally, seeing people cry and uh, being upset and being bothered by all that was going on and the police not letting other people help. Just the, the, the total condemnation of what it's like at the scene. Point number two, one of the defenses is that he was trained to do this, that the police officer Chauvin was trained to do this kind of thing, and therefore he did what his training told him to do. Point two in the trial. All right, now let's shift to the training. Now let's talk about whether or not what he did was acceptable. Was he trained to do this? And we start with Lieutenant Zimmerman, the most experienced officer in the entire police force, 
who says that no one is trained to put a knee on the neck after being handcuffed. After the person is handcuffed, he's no longer a threat. That knee should be removed from the neck. He was handcuffed and therefore not a threat, and therefore the training said that this knee shouldn't be on the neck. He testified that the individual you're arresting, that person's safety is your responsibility, and that Derek Chauvin had a responsibility to keep him safe, and that what was going on was totally unnecessary. The cross-examination by the defense lawyer, and frankly, all he can do, because obviously these people are trained law enforcement, they know how to testify from the witness stand, and they know how to screw you when you ask a question that's open-ended, that you, know, you don't want them just to give their opinion or continue to repeat their testimony. So what he did is he concentrated on the inexperience. Well, the inexperience of Lieutenant Zipperman was he hasn't been a street cop for decades, so he doesn't know what it's really like on the street. And include that 911 dispatcher I talked about before. She's inexperienced. She doesn't know what the police do. She doesn't know what police uh, procedures are. She's just a person that sits at a dispatch booth. So she, he concentrated on their inexperience to try to challenge their testimony. The Minneapolis police chief himself testified, saying that training required uh, Derek Chauvin to stop and give first aid. Then in the middle of all this, Morris Hall. Morris Hall was the guy in the car with George Floyd when he got arrested. They called Morris Hall to testify. Now remember, all these drugs were found in the car and the system. Morris Hall claimed the Fifth Amendment refused to testify. The jury never got to hear from Morris Hall. Then we heard from Mr. Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross. And one of the key elements that came out of this for the defense was the opioid addiction and the use of drugs. Because again, that's going to be a key player in the medical testimony that's going to come later. Then the supervisor, Sergeant Plodger, he testified that he's been Chauvin's supervisor for almost 20 years and that the knee on the throat, once the subject is handcuffed, is unacceptable. And he called Chauvin and said, what's going on? And Chauvin's response was, the guy's going crazy. And then Plodger went to the scene and he told them to gather witnesses and was told by Chauvin the witnesses were hostile. Again, key to the defense is that also that Chauvin was distracted or there was a lot of hostility going on and that he really wasn't concentrating on those nine minutes and 28 seconds. Inspector Katie Blackwell's in charge of training. They called her to testify as to the fact that she has known Chauvin for 20 years. She picked him to be in charge of a training officer so he could train other people. And therefore, he knew exactly what was, what was to be done. And she called what he did an improvised position, not something he was trained to do. A Sergeant Yang, who's the crisis intervention trainer, he's the one that does a 40-hour course so that police officers can recognize when people are in crisis. He taught Derek Chauvin to be able to see that George Floyd was in crisis and therefore, George Floyd should have been tended to and given first aid and not continue to have a, a knee in his neck. Lieutenant Johnny Merrill, he's a use of force instructor in the in-service training. He talked about proportionality, that the amount of force used should be in proportion to the resistance. He talked about uh, people are prone to injury if you're on their neck or their head. And he said that what was done here, the technique that was authorized by uh, that was done by 
Derek Chauvin was not an unauthorized technique. Now that's interesting. It wasn't taught, but it wasn't unauthorized. So that was a good point for the defense that what he was actually doing, the knee and the neck, was not unauthorized. However, he went on to say, it's not authorized to continue to use that technique when we, once we have somebody in handcuffs and under control. A couple of times during these cross-examinations, the defense pointed to certain still photos of the uh, video that were pulled from the video that show the knee was in the, uh, between the shoulder blades or the shoulder blade area some of the time. And the officers had to admit that yes, it wasn't always on the neck. It looked like at times there was a knee in the back and not just on the neck. So it may have been moved from the neck at times. And that's something I'm sure that will come out later. later. Um, Nicole McKenzie, who's a medical support officer, basically the CPR trainer, and the question that they asked her was during the video, you hear uh, Derek Chauvin say, if you can talk, you can breathe. She said that that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. People can talk and still have respiratory distress. So she was brought in specifically to countermand that particular statement uh, by Derek Chauvin uh, during the tape. And then in order to show, and, and again, good strategy here, this is not just uh, Minneapolis protecting its own butt here. They went out to Los Angeles. They found a sergeant, a, a, a Jody Stinger, who's from Los Angeles, and that person is an expert in use of force. So they flew that person, they paid $10,000 for this person to come in as an expert in use of force and testify that this was an excessive use of force and that someone that is in the prone position that you should stop the use of force or slow down your use of force in order to bring somebody from the outside looking at this video in order to give an opinion. Once they finished with the use of force, the training, uh, and that particular aspect of, uh, of what they were uh, doing and how the defense was painting things, they then moved, and that's where we are right now in the trial, and this is the medical testimony. And the medical testimony is really, really so important. The medical examiner in this county is uh, Dr. Baker. When Dr. Baker did the medical exam, he ruled that it was a cardiac arrest, not asphyxiation. And that caused a, a lot of problems for the local prosecutor. And that's why in this case, we've got six experts mentioned in opening statement by Mr. Blackwell, the prosecutor. He said they're gonna call six experts. Well, the reason they have to call six experts is because they have to distance themselves from the local medical examiner, Mr. Baker, because there's gonna be a conflict in the expert testimony. Baker is not an employee of the police department. Their medical examiners in, in Minnesota are independent. And therefore, he gives his own independent judgment. That judgment conflicts with the opening statement of the prosecutor. Remember I said, you know, they have chosen a particular route, the asphyxiation route. Because they have chosen that route, they're going to have to distance themselves from their medical examiner. So right now, and we'll cover this in another podcast, but a Dr. Martin Tobin, who's an expert in the physiology of breathing, is testifying. So now we've begun a third part of the trial. This is the medical experts. And the prosecution is doing, and I've watched some of this trial, I've got to say that they are very competent lawyers. They are doing a very good job of presenting an organized case. And this case, obviously, 
the huge publicity, a lot of pressure. Um, there are, you know, probably hundreds of people outside the courtroom. I've talked to uh, some people I know that live up in Minneapolis and they say that nobody goes downtown, that it's, it's cordoned off like a fortress um, in, in order because no one knows what's going to happen. Um, there's a lot of speeches being given outside the courthouse. All we can do is hope that the jury just relies on the evidence and that they are not influenced by what's going on outside the courtroom. The judge in this case, from everything I can see, is, a, is very competent calm. Um, I've watched the trial and he has been just excellent. Doesn't raise his voice, doesn't lose his temper, uh, merely makes the rulings and calls balls and strikes like he should. And he seems to be fair to both sides. Uh, he doesn't seem to have a real bias against one or the other. He has made a statement to the prosecutors, though, that he expects them to do a lot of the heavy lifting because there are so many of them and that they have such an advantage by being so many lawyers that their advantage means that he's going to rely on them to deal with matters that are extraneous to the trial or extraneous to the court. So he's doing a very good job. It's not like, I remember some of us may remember the uh, uh, trial of O.J. Simpson, where Judge Ito was uh, just such a personality on the bench. This guy just calls balls and strikes, and he tries to be fair to both sides, and he understands that the burden is on the prosecutor, and the prosecutor's resources are always so much greater than the defense. So we'll see how it carries on, and we'll uh, continue on with the rest of the update at the next podcast.